You are listening to Shining Star Community Church, English Ministries Sunday Message. Please visit us at www.shiningstar.life. What accounts for greatness? Thomas Edison said, I have not failed. I just found 10,000 ways that, that won't work. He also said genius is 1% inspiration, 99% perspiration. He said opportunity is missed by most people because it's dressed in overalls and looks like work. Tom Brady, arguably one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time, right? The GOAT, greatest, greatest of all time. A lot of times he said, I find that people who are blessed with the most talent don't ever develop that attitude and that talent and the ones who aren't blessed in that way are the most competitive and have actually the bigger, biggest heart. LeBron James, currently also one of the, arguably one of the best of all times and certainly who's rising to the top and is currently in his, the NBA championship, he says, I'm going to use all my tools, my God-given ability and make the best life I can with it. He says, I like criticism. I like it. It makes you strong. Or we can be honest, like Derek Zoolander, who said, I'm pretty sure there's more to life than being really, really ridiculously good-looking, and I plan on finding out what that is. What accounts for greatness? Is it hard work, being a genius, and a little bit of good luck? Is it raw talent, the intangibles, as it's called, like Tom Brady or LeBron, or maybe it's just being completely lucky, being at the right place at the right time? The thing about greatness is that it never really comes ex as expected because the road to greatness is almost never what we thought it'd be. So I want you guys to follow me as we go through this chapter. I'm actually going to go through the entire chapter of 32, and we're going to discover what this path of greatness means and what it looks like in regards to this Old Testament patriarch Jacob and his life. So my first point is this. Surrender your fear to God. Say, surrender your fear to God. So I think we live in a culture that likes fear. We like it. We like to mess with it. We like to toy with it. I, I'll be honest, I have a habit of scaring Joe. My office is right next to the entrance where most of our EM staff enter through, and Joe having a loud sports car with a loud exhaust. You can hear him come a mile away, and so I know when he's arrived. So I'll hear him park, and then I'll stand right behind that door. And as he opens the door, he'll come face to face with a rather stoic Pastor David here standing in the way. Joe will inevitably lay out or let out a high-pitched scream. He'll clutch his chest. He'll, he might drop a book or two. But then, he'll just, but then I'll just slip into my office as if nothing happened. Now you may think, why would you do that? The answer is, why wouldn't I? I like keeping my staff on their toes. Granted, only, I only seem to be doing it to Joe. But we love fear, okay? Although I'm sure Joe would beg to differ. The movie Get Out, you've heard of that. Of course you have. On the Rotten Tomato scoreboard, it's rated almost a perfect 100%. It's actually 99. It's achieved over $240 million worldwide. It's a thriller. It's gory. It's a scary movie. It's about death and darkness, racism and everything else that they can throw at us. And yet, something as negative and bleak and dark as that, we flock to it and to the theaters to watch. I'm sure many of you guys have seen it as well. Maybe you don't like scary movies, but you like amusement rides. 
You know, when I was a youth pastor, I took the youth ministry a couple times to King's Dominion. Now, <clears throat> amusement parks are never my cup of tea, but the kids, they loved it. They loved waiting in line for an hour and a half, all for a two-minute long ride. I don't get it. But they loved the rickety construction of the grizzly roller coaster. Do you remember that? Apparently, they're closing it down. They love the dark and supersonic speed and fast ride the Intimidator. I wrote that. I almost died. <laughs> fear is our entertainment, right? But then there's real fear, the fear of life, the fear of death. It's truly terrifying. It's one thing to know that there are evil people out in the world. But it's another to know that those evil people are actually out trying to get us. Now, Jacob's fear wasn't like an amusement park fear. It wasn't like a I like a thriller fear. His fear was real. He was consumed by fear of his brother Esau. Now, you guys remember the story. Jacob stole Esau's blessing from his father Isaac. And in response, Esau had sworn that he would kill Jacob as soon as their father died. Now, as Jacob returns to the land of Canaan, he's reminded of Esau's threat. And so as that threat gets a little bit closer, Jacob really starts freaking out. He really begins to get scared, and this fear, it really drove Jacob to his knees before God. Now, as Jacob is about to re-enter the land of the fathers, he sends word to Esau, his brother, hoping that things have changed. Oh, Lord, I pray that Esau would respond and receive this message differently. He's hoping, like the saying says, time heals all wounds would actually be true, that Esau's vengeful anger would somehow be softened over all that time that had passed. But the word that the messenger brings back to Jacob wasn't all too encouraging. The messenger said, Esau's on his way, yes, but with him are 400 men. That's a small army. This is Esau's squad. He's bringing his mighty men. Now Jacob, he obviously doesn't exactly know what this is all about, but you can't blame him for expecting the worst. So he's kind of getting jittery. And so the guilt Jacob had, the guilty fear of having done what he had done before, the tricking of his brother and then tricking his father, it brought about so much fear that we read in verses 7 and 8. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. Think about that for a second. That is a horrible thing for him to even think about. Jacob is thinking, pretty much I got children, half of them are going to die. I'm going to have to divide this camp and sacrifice one group to save the other. Now, Jacob, he thought of this plan, this idea because of the two camp when he first made camp. You see, there was a camp of heavenly hosts, if you see verse 1. A heavenly host. In other words, there are angels of the Lord there. That's why he named the place Mahanaim, which means two camps. But was he comforted knowing that he had this angelic army right there, these angelic hosts? Was he comforted knowing that the heavenly hosts were right there with him? No, because he was too fearful. Because of all the fear he had, he would see, he realized, man, this is all I can think about. He had so much fear. He was fearing death. He had so much more despair. This is how petrified he was, that even though the heavenly hosts were with him, that you know what? He thought he was done for. So what did Jacob do? 
His fear drove him to his knees, and he began to pray. Now, of all the things that have happened in Jacob's life already, this is the first record of him praying. And now before we say that's messed up, let's be encouraged and say, well, at least he's finally praying, right? It was actually a pretty good prayer too. And I want to talk about that prayer for a moment. You see, in that prayer, he acknowledged that it was God of his grandfather Abraham and God of his father Isaac who had sent him back to the land. Meaning, you're not just a God, you're my grandfather's God and you're my father's God and that you're providentially bringing me back to this land and you have brought me back to this point. Then Jacob confessed his unworthiness of all the blessings that God had given him. Then Jacob prayed that God would save him and he even prayed for his wives and he even prayed for his children. And lastly, he prayed according to all of God's promises. And so, in the end, when you read that prayer, you're thinking, that's a pretty good prayer. That's a pretty good prayer. But you'll notice that there are a few things missing that Jacob did not mention in the prayer. Firstly, he mentioned that God was indeed his grandfather's God, that God was indeed his father's God, but he never did he say, God is his God. Okay? And not only that, Jacob never addressed his sin against Esau. Remember, this whole fear, this whole issue that's going on was because of the situation that he had with Esau. And yet this is the thing that he should have repented about. This is the thing that he should have surrendered to God about. And yet you never see him calling his sin out and asking for forgiveness regarding his relationship with Esau. And not only that, and maybe most importantly, he never asked God, okay, so what do I do now? He never asked God for direction. He never asked God for guidance. He never asked God for instructions. What did the lack of these prayer points mean then? It means that though his prayer may have sounded superficially good, that it was still a prayer that was consumed with guilt and fear. Fear completely controlled even the way he prayed. So Jacob decided that he needed to do something else. So he planned to kind of get on his knees before Esau. And how would that look like? That he would have a servant send a flock of 200 goats to Esau. 200 goats to Esau. As a way for him to apologize and kind of submit and be like, brother, take it easy. Come on, let's, let's, I'm your brother, you know. And so Jacob, he carefully had the messenger say to Esau, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my Lord Esau, and moreover, he is behind us, meaning it's coming here. But what if 200 goats weren't enough? So he got another servant, and he sent 20 male goats with the same instructions. But maybe that too wasn't enough. And so he sent 200 female sheep, then 20 rams, then 30 female camels with their calves, then 40 cows, then 10 bulls, then 20 female donkeys, then 10 more male donkeys, and then a partridge in a pear tree. I mean, think, he sent everything. Please, please forgive me. Don't beat me up. Don't kill me. Don't annihilate my family, my camp. All the while in verse 20, Jacob is thinking, he's saying, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. He says, perhaps he will accept me. Perhaps he will accept me. You see how terrified he is? Perhaps he'll be happy with this. Maybe he'll like me after this. Possibly he'll forgive me if I give him this. 
Fear is driving Jacob to his knees before God, and that's not the bad problem, you see. Fear is driving Jacob to his knees before Esau. Jacob has this fear of judgment. Yes, from God, but no, from Esau. His guilty conscience is making him a coward. He's allowing Esau and his hatred of what he thinks Esau believes about him to dictate his life. The consequences of past sins have caught up and is now terrorizing Jacob's soul. All that scheming, all that praying, all those gifts that he sent are doing nothing for him. It's providing no semblance of peace, no semblance of comfort or acceptance. He's being tormented even after doing all that he thought he could do. And folks, this is what the Bible is saying for us here. Nothing you will do, nothing you will provide, nothing you can give will ever bring you peace. We all think, once I do this, once I finish that, once I have this or there, I will go. Finally, I'll be able to breathe. Finally, I'll be good. Finally, I'll be comfortable. You see, nothing we do will give us peace. Whatever sin you have will follow you. Will follow you. Whatever fear you have will consume you. Whatever insecurity that is driving you will continue to drive you. Whatever root of bitterness that, that you have right now will only grow deeper. Nothing you do will ever give you that peace that you're looking for. The memory of your sin will only eat you up like cancer to your soul. You will be terrified of being exposed, terrified of being revealed as someone who's not what they say they are. You will face the terror of judgment. Do you see the problem with Jacob's thought process and his actions? Jacob's sacrifice, his desire to make amends, to confess, to do what is right, all that, it simply illustrates this, the fact that there's a massive gulf between man's thinking and God's. We think we can approach a holy and sinless God the way Jacob is attempting to approach Esau, hoping that somehow his sacrifices to Esau, that his gift giving, that his service, that his relinquishing and surrendering will somehow open doors to acceptance, and it won't. What we fail to understand that the only gift we could ever give God is a gift that he has already given to us first. Just as Jacob is going to soon discover, we too have to realize that gifts and trying to negotiate with God somehow will do nothing to solve our guiltiness. No, only grace can fix that. Only forgiveness from the Father can fix that. So when you're fearful, when you're guilty, what does it do? Does it drive you to your knees? Does it cripple you? Does it totally mess you up in your day-to-day? -day? Fear and guilt, it cripples us. It keeps us from pursuing deeper walk with the Lord. It keeps us from wanting to engage with others in transparency. It keeps us from wanting to give love and to even receive love, to give forgiveness and even receive forgiveness. You see, this type of guilt or fear of Whatever you might have will destroy our confidence. It will turn us into cowards. It will make us run at the first hint of trouble. It will drive us into despair. And no amount of doing more, of serving more, of attending more, or, or trying to negotiate with God more, if you, God, I will read the Bible more if you do this, or, and all that stuff, none of that will ever solve the problems of our soul. But there's good news. Everyone say Hallelujah. Everyone take a deep breath. <laughs> that goes to my second point. God will defeat you. 
to save you. God will defeat us to save us. Can you say that? God will defeat us to save us. <clears throat> All right, who plays video games? I don't care. I don't play video games, and I don't mind it either, to be honest. But I've played race car games. I know they're not called race car games. <laughs> but I've played race car games at the arcade. Anyways. Um, <clears throat> and, and it's pretty fun, and it's simple. Why? Because a race car, you're in a car, and you turn left or you turn right. That's it. You press the gas or you press the brakes. You know, there was a time, long time ago, before Mosaic was Mosaic. This is such this is a tangent. I'm sorry, but I don't care. So Multiplex, right? There was a Multiplex theater inside that arcade. The race car games actually had six-speed manual. <laughs> so that's it, right? Race car games are pretty simple. You turn left, you turn right, you do the brake and all that stuff. Now, I remember at an arcade, right next to the race car game was also a flying game, an airplane game, okay? Do you know how difficult it is to transition from a race car game to an airplane game? It's kind of difficult because the car game, you turn left or right. When you hop over into the plane, you got left, you got right, you got up, and you got down. It's that vertical dimension when it gets thrown at you that ruined me. It was difficult. It's complicated for me, for me at least. And here's the thing. I see that with God too. As people, we're always just about the horizontal aspect of life, the left or the right in terms of dealing with one another. But I want you guys to know as Christ followers, we need to understand that we live in a vertical world. You got that? We live in a vertical world too because in every relationship that you are in, every business that we conduct, every decision that you make here in this life, know this, God is a player in it. God is a player. God, he is involved in some way, shape, or form. It is not just about what's going on here to there. You see, it's about what's going on here to here. So in our passage today, we know that Jacob, he was consumed by his fear of Esau, which is his horizontal relationship with his brother. But while all that's happening, Jacob had completely ignored the reality of his vertical life. He has completely either forgotten or ignored that God is a player here, that he's doing something, that he wants something. So get this, in verse 1, it talks about the angels meeting Jacob as he made camp. But what we'll find out is why from verses 22-32. Now remember, Mahanaim meant two camps. And it really was two camps. It was one camp of divine creatures, and the other one was of humans. And the reality of all this is that Jacob had to deal with God first before he thought he could deal with Esau. It's about the first vertical relationship before he can deal with the horizontal and so we read that Jacob, he wrestled with the man, where eventually Jacob, he realized it was the Lord himself. I want to pick this apart for a second. I think it's interesting that here God is Jacob's adversary. That here God is Jacob's opponent. That's a weird concept because we never see God as our adversary, right? If anything, Jacob's adversaries were who? Laban, Uncle Laban, who hates him. And Esau, who wants him dead. But God being our enemy, God being our adversary, God being our opponent, why would God want to hurt anyone, right? 
Jacob's prayer is actually much more informing than we originally thought because his prayer is essentially prayed this way. Thank you, God, for blessing me. God, bless me more. God, save me from my trouble. What kind of prayer does that sound like? It sounds like someone who clearly has Santa and God mixed up, right? God, he is not at our disposal. And he certainly wasn't at Jacob's either. And so suddenly, out of the darkness, a hand seized Jacob. And this is freaking Jacob out. Who was it? Was it an assassin sent by my brother Esau to finally kill me? Was it a bandit, a robber trying to rob me? And in an instant, Jacob found himself to be in a hand-to-hand combat. He was fighting, he was biting, kicking, clawing, doing anything he could to overcome this unexpected fight, this unexpected clash, as if his life depended on it. But why? What was the point of this fight? Why would God deal with Jacob in such a physical, rough and tough way? You see, all of Jacob's life, it was all about his own power, wasn't it? It was about his own striving. Jacob relied on his own wit his own ability whenever he faced any opposition. And here's the thing, after every incident, whether he trick or do something to get out of it, he would end up leaving just one mess after the other. The problem would just snowball. Whatever situation he left would be bigger and worse. And because it was all his doing, things didn't get better. In fact, the crater got bigger, the problem got bigger, a lot of collateral damage, and the reason was Jacob's problem wasn't that he had human adversaries. Jacob's problem was that he made God his adversary. He made God his enemy. It wasn't the fact that I got an enemy called named you or I got this problem with my coworker. No, no, you have to understand. Whenever we're not holy, whenever we're not right, whenever we're not living righteously, the enemy that we have created at that moment is God. He thought he was tricking and rebelling against people when the entire time he was rebelling against God. And because he failed to realize that, he was doing everything he could to fix it by giving all these animals away, by doing all this, by sacrificing more and more and more. But it was all in vain because it's not about the people. It's about his heart. It was about his relationship with God. And that's what was at war. He made God his enemy. In this time right now, to the difficulties and the circumstances that surround you. You might say, I have beef with that person, my coworker, or that fellow student, my classmate, or maybe my mom, or my husband, or my children, whatever it is. But you have to understand, it's not just about the horizontal. You made an enemy of God. When you pursue anything outside of his holiness, when you're, not, when you're not pursuing humility, when you're not pursuing righteousness, anything apart from seeking to live the way that God wants us to, we are rebelling, therefore we are making him our enemy. And so Jacob, he wrestles with this human manifestation of God all night long, and it was tiring for him. It was exhausting. But Jacob, he had a lot of fight in him. Remember, he rolled the stone away from the well when the three other shepherds couldn't do it. So he thought maybe he could get the other person, whoever it was, to tap out. Maybe he could at least get a draw. But you know what? Everything was just going, going until the Lord touched his hip, the socket of his hip. You see how much Jacob had, had to do to try to win? To at least get a draw or a tie? But do you see how the Lord was really, 
he really kind of had his arms behind his back, and he was like playing with him because all God had to do was touch him on the hip and in an instant rendered the so-called mighty and the so-called clever and self-made Jacob completely broken and lame. And so once Jacob gets injured, he begins to hold on to dear life. Have you ever seen a boxing match? Have you ever seen a boxer start to grab at his opponent like as if he suddenly realized that he wants to make love, not war? Right? Well, do you know why? It's because they're exhausted and they're afraid of getting knocked out, so they're holding the opponent in a clutch. Jacob's doing that too. He's wounded and he won't let go. And finally realizing that it was God, Jacob begs for his blessing as he holds on for dear life. Now, a lot of people have misconstrued this verse into thinking that the point of the wrestling match was for Jacob to get his blessing from God. Really? I'm not going to let go until you give me what I want. You know what that sounds like? My three-year-old daughter. Right? So yeah, if you want to have a spiritual tantrum because God's not giving what you want, you can go ahead and interpret it this way. But that's not what I believe it means. I think it's completely backwards. You see, the wrestling wasn't done for Jacob to receive the blessing. The wrestling was done so that God could get something from Jacob. And what was that thing? God wanted to reduce Jacob into a sense of nothingness. To make him see how feeble and pathetic and helpless and worthless he actually was. It's like God saying, you think you can do this for yourself? You think you can beat me? You think you know better than me? You think you can rebel against me without any consequence? You think you can't submit to me? Do you know who I am? Do you know what I'm capable of in your life? Don't you know that I'm giving you your very next breath right now? Don't you know that I hold the entire universe in the palm of my hands? Jacob, in the moment of his wrestle with the Lord, was asked, What is your name? Now here's the thing. Biblical names, they're connected to the person's nature. So to admit your name was to admit your nature. And so Jacob, who got defeated by God, he knew he couldn't keep up his charade any longer. So he says his name. He admits his name. He confesses his name, Jacob. This name means deceiver. I'm a swindler. A heel grabber, as it says. Remember in chapter 27, Esau made a point about Jacob's name. Man, isn't he rightly named Jacob? He's deceived me these two times. He took my birthright, and now he's taking my blessing. Yeah, this guy is a punk. Yeah, he's a loser. So in this moment of weakness, in that moment where he was completely broken and defeated, Jacob admits who he is before God. But wait. Rather than finishing Jacob off and killing him, annihilating him, something he totally deserved. Instead of banishing Jacob far away to the ends of the earth where he would experience no more joy, no more hope, no more kindness. No, no, God instead, he blesses Jacob with a new name. God removes his old identity and gives him a brand new one. No longer will you be called Jacob the deceiver. You will now be called Israel, which means God prevails, God perseveres, God contends, God will fight for you. 
You are now Israel. So what's that all about then? God defeated Jacob. God brought Jacob to an end of himself, of who he is, of what he can do, of what he could try to figure out. All that. God permanently disabled him. But in doing that, God also delivered Jacob rather than destroying him. Friends, the plans and desires God has for you is amazing. I want you guys to know that. The impact he desires for us to make in this life are great, and yet it's we who get in the way. Our desire to know God more is being halted by our own efforts and ultimately by our own pride. Do you know why so many people hate the message of the Bible? Because it goes completely against the message of the world. The world says, you have to do it yourself. You have to make it to become great. It's about your effort. It's about your hard work. It's about your doing. No one's going to help you out. you got to help yourself. It's all about you if you want to become great. But God says differently. You see, God, he broke Jacob down to save him. God defeated Jacob to make him victorious. And in his grace, God took away his sin. And what was that? It was his old name. That's sin. It was his old identity. And though Jacob was made weak, though he was disabled at the hip, God, he changed Jacob's name to Israel to say, I'm going to fight for you now. It's not about you anymore. It's about me. It's always been about me. I will contend. I will fight. I will persevere. This is the great mystery of grace and mercy. And just as it was for Jacob, here it is in our Christian life. Brothers and sisters, we win by losing. We win by losing. Because God, he saves us by defeating us, you see. And that's how salvation works. Jesus appeared defeated as God crushed him in punishment for our sin. But through grace, God raised him from the dead. His resurrection gives us the resurrection life. You see, Christ wrestled with God on our behalf. He wrestled with God in the garden, crying out, if possible, take this cup from me. Then he wrestled with God again on the cross when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, Christ wasn't just crippled on the hip. He was wounded. He was flogged. He was crucified. And he was burdened down with the weight of the sins of the world. But in all that, he clung to the Father. He clung to the Father. And he would not let go until he received a blessing. But that blessing was not for himself. That blessing he clung to God was, was for his people. You see, it was the blessing of salvation for you and I. And that's what Christ did for us on the cross. But not only that, it wasn't just a pattern of the cross. It's also a pattern of the Christian life. Life comes through death, victory through suffering. We find our lives as we lose it, as we lose it to God. Self-denial leads to fulfillment. And just as with Apostle Paul, God oftentimes will not remove the thorn from your flesh because he aims to remind us of our continued weakness so that we would continually to rely upon his strength. Will you rely upon God's strength? So what is God saying to us today? God isn't giving us some formula to plug in so that into our lives so that we can get a blessing. No. God, he's our amazing father. He's our amazing savior, our amazing king who will do everything he can to get us back to him. He's considered the hound of heaven who will always search for us no matter what. And yes, it means that he might even himself make our, 
he himself might become our adversary if necessary. Why? So that he could defeat us, so that he could break us down in order to save us and restore us back to him. But what can we learn from Jacob? As we wrestle with God, even though we don't have the slightest chance, even though he will most certainly defeat us, still, God, he calls us, even in our weakened state, to cling desperately onto him. And we have to cling to him until our pride, our self-confidence, our self-righteousness are reduced to nothing. And it will be only at that moment that he will bless us with a new identity, with a new life, with a new focus, a new purpose, and a new name. So do you have fear today? What is it doing to you today? Is it drawing guilt and shame within you? Is it keeping you from connecting with other people? Is it holding you back from worshiping God, from seeking his face and his voice? Or maybe you are praying, but it's not doing so great. Maybe you are reading the Bible, but nothing is getting through, perhaps because you're still locked in fear. Maybe you're still locked in the guilt of your past, the frustration of your present, and the uncertainty of your future. Is that you today? But you see, God's promise is that he is with us and that he'll deliver us. But we must be broken first. We must be defeated first. We must be humble first. And we must confess that we are nothing. You see, the path of greatness, and I end with this, it's not just raw talent or the ability to pull yourself up by your bootstraps or good luck. You see, the churches I know that have a vibrant community, that have authentic ministry, that has a gospel-loving body, those churches, those ministries never just happen. They don't just happen. These church bodies, these members, they've all endured together debilitating illnesses together. They've endured broken relationships together. They've endured struggles of career and finances together. They've endured bitter defeats together. But in all that, they've both, all, every member clung to the cross. They've clung to the cross. It's only when we as a body are willing to walk together through the deep waters together that truly great things will happen you see Jacob's experience as he wrestled with God was that he lost but folks for us as Christians who don't live in the world know this if you lose to God you will actually have won you will actually have won so surrender Surrendering is not losing in the way that the world defines losing. Surrender yourself, and you will see victory. Amen? All right, let's pray. As our heads are bowed, just a, another reminder of the sign-up sheet in the back. Please do sign up for either of the um, June 24th service uh, opportunities of cleaning back or <clears throat> help serving and cleaning up the fellowship hall downstairs. It will be up for the next couple weeks. Folks, let's pray. Is there fear in your life? Fear that is not fear of the Lord. If so, don't you know that fear will cripple you? Don't you know that fear has already crippled you? 
And maybe it's not something as big as you or that you think I'm trying to say it is, but rather it's, it's a fear that is a little bit more subtle. It's a fear of wanting to, not wanting to leave your comfort zone, of not wanting to grow and be challenged spiritually. You're complacent. You like what's familiar. You like where you're at right now. Because you're scared. You're scared of the unknown. You're scared of what God is going to ask of you. You're scared perhaps of what the church is going to ask of you. You're scared of the new depth of relationship challenges that you'll face. And maybe right now, God, he's challenging you. Accept that challenge. Let God slay you. Let him defeat you. Let him break you down fiber by fiber, bone by bone. Let him tear you down. And you will see, you will see how he will raise you up. it all to God there is no better way and through that you will see with your own eyes you will experience with your own life what true greatness is so let's take a moment and pray and we'll go into our last song